Chapter Fifteen of Policy and Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Policy and Passion by Rosa Campbell Preed. Chapter Fifteen The Dryad of the Tie Tree. Down by the creek, deep in the umbrageous shadow of fern and cedar, Barrington first saw Honoria. He was driving over from Daraba alone and was skirting the river-bank in the half-admitted hope of meeting Angela. He was not aware that Miss Longleat had returned from Lakehart's town, and it was with joyful surprise that he recognized in a secluded bend of the creek, a little below the crossing, the original of Angela's sketch. Honoria was sitting upon the horizontal branch of a tie-tree, her back resting against the trunk, her feet almost touching the water, as it glided over a bed of stones, its melodious murmuring deafening the sound of voice or footfall, into a deep pool hemmed in by ferny banks. A book lay upon her lap, a cluster of the crimson bottle-brush flowers of the tie-tree swayed above her head, a sunbeam striking upon the coils of her hair made them look like ropes of reddish gold. The quivering leaves cast delicate shadows upon her white-clad shoulders and round white throat and the water gurgled against one smooth arm which, with its muslin sleeve rolled carelessly above the elbow, trooped lightly into the stream, and made a resistance to the shallow current. A kangaroo hound, lying on the ground beside her, barked loudly at the sight of a stranger. "'Quiet, Dura!' exclaimed Honoria, as she lifted her full eyes from her book, a yellow-backed tome from the select library of fiction, and turned them aimlessly upon the opposite bank but an intervening log with fresh sprouts forming a natural hedge above its naked trunk hid Barrington from her view. She resumed her reading for a few moments, then threw down the volume and said aloud, Starch, sentiment, and twaddle. It is like a sidlitz powder flavored with sugar. Oh, how tired I am of these novels! Come, Dura, we had better go home. What is the matter with you now? Honoria rose, and looking straight across the creek, met Barrington's gaze of critical admiration. She colored slightly and bowed, not at all puzzled as to his identity. She had heard him described by the Pharisees. Aunt Penelope in especial had been eloquent in her raptures, and, making allowance for slight hyperbole, Honoria was obliged to confess that she had painted with tolerable accuracy. Here was a promising opening for a drama, in which the hero would undoubtedly possess the outward essential attributes of his position, and might readily be classed above that social and intellectual standard implied by the term interesting. Barrington crossed the little strip of water which separated them, and hat in hand, dismounted and approached Miss Longleat. Honoria looked at him with her wide open eyes, their expression combining the innocence of a child with the fearlessness of an animal. The dog still barked loudly. Be quiet, Dura, said she again, laying her shapely fingers upon its neck. Barrington was keenly sensible to harmony of circumstance and surroundings. This divine creature appeared to advantage against a background of foliage and plain. Her beauty, viewed under present conditions, excited a far more warm emotion than it could have aroused had he made her acquaintance in a European or Australian ballroom. He was a worshipper of female loveliness, but clearly this dryad of the tie-tree represented no type with which he had as yet come into contact. The region might be classical, and he a new Arcus. "'I beg your pardon for disturbing you,' he said. "'I believe that the regular crossing-place is higher up the river.' 
but I am not yet bushman enough to be able to make landmarks of ridges and gullies. Lady Dolph Bassett advised me to follow the watercourse. I think that I have the honour of speaking to Miss Longleat. Honoria signified assent. I had the pleasure of staying for a fortnight at Kurabin some little time ago, continued Barrington. I regretted much that both you and your father were in Leichardt's town. I felt a wish to make myself known to Mr. Longleat and my friend Lord Dolph Bassett who is better acquainted with Australian customs than I, who am a stranger, assured me that I should be welcome a second time. May I introduce myself? My name is Barrington. Honoria bowed and smiled. Barrington's impression of her manner was that it blended in a curious degree dignity and seductiveness. Lord Dolph's friends are always welcome, she said, and we are glad to see you for your own sake. Mrs. Ferris has told me of you. I have not been long at Coralbin. My father is unfortunately still in town, but Aunt Penelope will be charmed. I am just going to walk home. The house is no distance from here, and if you like, I will show you the way. Come, Dura. You have dropped your book, said Barrington, picking up the yellow-backed volume she had been reading. I am not surprised that you choose the riverbed for your study. I am in love with the beauty of Australian creeks. When I last came over from Dairaba, I met Miss Ferris at the crossing, and she, too, was carrying a book. Oh, Angelus, it's dreaming over poetry for hours. I only read because it is less tedious than contemplating the gum-trees. As for that stupid story, pray do not trouble yourself about it. It is of very little consequence what becomes of it. A stockman might have found it, and it would certainly have amused him more than it has amused me. Novels are all alike. They are false and unnatural. I like plays better. They, at any rate, are real as far as they go. I am surprised that you, a colonial, should complain of the artificiality of existence, said Barrington, after a short pause, during which they had clambered up the bank and gained the plain. Australian life strikes me as being so very realistic. I should not have imagined that you would be blasé. Do not call me a colonial, said Honoria, with pretty petulance. When you have lived longer in Australia, you will know that you could not pay a young lady a worse compliment. I accept the rebuke, said Barrington, laughing, though I don't in the least know how I have deserved it. To be colonial is to talk Australian slang, to be badly dressed, vulgar, everything that is abominable, replied Honoria with grave simplicity. At least, that is the general opinion. I have seen the Englishwoman who talks slang, only in a different way. Nevertheless, we all tried to imitate them, just as we copy Paris models for our gowns. You will see that it is the fashion out here to be as British as possible. Our loyalty ought to flatter your national vanity. You have lately come from England, have you not? Yes, replied Barrington. In technical language, I am a new chum. And do you relish what you call the realism of Australia? It is hardly fair to catechize me when as yet I have seen no part of the colony but the Koorong district. Do you like it so far? Do you find the people better or worse than you expected? You have been staying at Dairaba. How do you like Lady Dolph Bassett? She is a fair specimen, I suppose, of an Australian, as she has never been out of Leichhardt's land in her life. I imagine that one likes or dislikes a woman in proportion to the amount of interest she excites in one's mind answered Barrington. Lady Dolph does not affect me in the least. Honoria uttered a little laugh. It seems to me, she said, 
that everybody and everything might be classed under two headings, that which interests and that which bores. The fault which I have to find with persons in general is that they don't stimulate my curiosity. I am perpetually trying to make believe that I am amused and cannot succeed. You are easily bored, then? Honoria approved of his air of repressed inquiry, which conveyed a veiled complimentary reference to her own particular disposition. I am afraid that I don't know enough of the world to define boredom. I am always fancying that we Australians are like children playing at being grown up. It is in Europe that people live. She paused abruptly. Barrington smiled. I thought so when I first left it. I do not now. Australia is less odious, then, than you imagined? Australia is delightful. There is a thoroughness about it which pleases me immensely. A few refining touches, and there would be nothing to desire. All that is lacking are traditional influences, and they will come in time. But do you not see? Everything with us is borrowed. We cannot be original. We cannot even set up an independent government. We must copy old-world forms, and we have nothing of what makes the charm of the old world. Our range of view is so limited. We are so ignorant of life, and ignorant people cannot put out feelers, either deeply or widely. I think that you do yourself an injustice as a representative of young Australia, said Barrington. The very longing for experience implies a large capacity for sensation. I feel sure that is your case. Honoria looked at him eagerly. She was longing to hear further analysis of herself, but was too proud to put a leading question or remark to one so nearly a stranger. Barrington saw that he had made an impression and wisely left it to deepen. They had reached the slip-rails. He let them down, and they walked towards the house almost without speaking. Upon the fence the purple passion-fruit were still hanging. Mrs. Ferris poked her becapped head over the window of her cottage and bestowed a warm welcome upon her guest. She could not speak too highly of Mr. Barrington. Janie ran out and clung to Honoria's skirts, and Angela, who had been sitting in one of the squatter's chairs in the veranda, gazing dreamily towards the mountain, approached and, with a joyful smile, gave him her hand. Who can tell in what subtle harmonies the inner chords of maidenly consciousness first vibrate at the touch of love? Since Barrington's departure from Kurlbin, waking or sleeping, the thought of him had been ever-present in Angela's mind. A dreamy sense of happiness seemed like an odor to pervade life. Nature and art spoke to her in new tones. Poetry was no longer mere passionless elevation of the soul. Music appealed to a deep-seated longing. The clouds kissing the mountains, the breeze stirring the leaves, the flowers bending towards each other on the plain, awakened thrills of sweet comprehension. The world contained a new element, that of love. Yet, though she felt the influence of this dreamy languor, half pleasurable, half painful, she did not attribute it to its rightful source and greeted the Englishman with all the frankness of innocent maidenhood. Mr. Ferris was seated in the parlour, in absorbed contemplation of a rural scene in watercolours, which he had propped upon a table before him. "'This is my little hour of recreation, after a day devoted to unlovely detail,' he said, shaking hands with Mr. Barrington. "'I am glad that you have arrived at this moment to see my little gem in so perfect a light. There is atmosphere for you.' You breathe it. It encompasses you. A hayfield, 
but what a hayfield! You sniff the dry grass, the breeze bears the scent to your nostrils. It is English, it is rural, it is idyllic. It has such a nice feeling. Barrington, looking over the old man's shoulder, was more interested in observing the effect of a sunbeam that shone through the grape leaves with which the veranda was tapestried, and cast a reddish glow upon Miss Longleat's head and face, deepening the shadows of brow and eyelash, and blending her colouring into a richness of tint that reminded him of one of Raphael's Madonnas. Even Mr. Ferris, glancing up suddenly, regarded her with a purely artistic admiration, which changed into snarling depreciation as she passed disdainfully into the garden. "'You see how she despises me?' he whispered angrily. "'She does not even fling at me as many words as she bestows upon her dog. "'What am I in her estimation? "'Nothing but the fawning dependent of a rich father. "'Well, the time may come. "'We shall see. "'We shall see.' "'Mr. Ferris continued for a few moments "'to mutter wrathful but inaudible words "'as he stooped over his picture.' then relapsed into a fit of morose silence, and Barrington walked out into the garden, attracted by the flutter of muslin drapery beneath the orange trees where the two girls, with Janie, were sitting. End of chapter 15 Read by Celine Major.